Today, we have a very intense session, a very intense session. I think it's all the philosophers are intense, but <laughs> this is uh, getting closer to home for us um, on political issues with Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt of the 20th century. Let's start with a poll question. <clears throat> Thank you all for your flexibility by changing days this week, too. Should Eichmann have been killed? Um, so Eichmann was one of the top Nazis um, under his command killed many, many people. And as you know, um, he was the only, the only time that Israel's ever used a death penalty was with Eichmann in the famous Eichmann trials. And Hannah Arendt had a lot to say about it, as we'll see. Option one, no, the death penalty should be abolished in all cases. Option two, yes, I don't support the death penalty in general, with only very rare exceptions like this. Option three, yes, I strongly support the death penalty for all kinds of evil people. Okay, very interesting. 50% said no, the death penalty should be abolished in all cases. And 50% said, yes, I don't support the death penalty in general, but with only with very, very rare cases such as this. Okay, so we're going to get into that issue a little bit today. By the way, I've started including a candle with me here. I just find that I enjoy uh, the study of Torah that much more when there's candles. And I invite you to have a candle as well if that speaks to you. Okay, dear friends, what causes people to do evil? Do they set out to harm others? Or do they lack free choice by finding themselves in evil systems? What can be done about the problem of authoritarianism? Born in Germany into a secular Jewish middle-class progressive family. Those are a lot of adjectives, so I'll say those again. Secular Jewish middle-class progressive family. Hannah Arendt would become one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. In her higher education, Arendt received just about the best German philosophical mentorship possible. She studied with Martin Heidegger and Edmund Husserl, and her doctoral supervisor was the existentialist philosopher, philosopher Karl Jaspers. In 1933, the year after Hitler came to power, Arendt was arrested for doing research into anti-Semitism, which was illegal. She was eventually released from prison, and she fled Germany, ultimately landing in the U.S. Having been a Jew imprisoned in Germany, Arendt's awareness toward restoring the social well-being of Jews was acute, and she helped many young Jews immigrate uh, to Israel. She would go on to write many influential books, become Princeton's first female full professor, and even had an asteroid named after her. Yes, there's an asteroid named after Hannah Arendt. Arendt engaged different philosophical questions, but she most notably addressed issues of power and evil by looking at the dynamics of authority and democracy. She famously covered the trial of Holocaust mastermind Adolf Eichmann as a journalist. And in doing so, she popularized, popularized the concept and phrase of the banality of evil. But before that, in her 1951 work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Arendt examined the emergence of communism and Nazism. Controversially, she saw them as having a number of similarities, 
Even though many have a tendency to distinguish between these ide ideologies, Arendt was interested in totalitarianism in all of its manifestations. Right? A lot of communists were against totalitarianism and didn't see the totalitarian tendencies within communism itself. And uh, so you, you could be a commie or you could be a, a, a conservative. It isn't really so charitable to conservatives, but conservative totalitarian um, as a, a you know, far left totalitarian or far right totalitarian. But, um, she was critical of both, you could say. The major point she made was that World War I and the Great Depression created an atmosphere of uncertainty and political instability in many European nation states. People wanted a clear path forward, given all the uncertainty and all the chaos, and they were welcoming to demagogues and authoritarians who claimed to offer a clear path to prosperity. Their pursuit of raw power ultimately led to undermining the basics of democracy and transforming existing social structures to maximize social control, right? Whether you wanted a, a commie totalitarian or, or, the, or the opposite extreme. In 1958, Arendt published The Human Condition, in which she critiqued Western philosophy and modern capitalist middle-class life by suggesting that we've lost our connection to labor and worldly experiences, <laughs> trapping ourselves in the abstractions of the mind. By the way, this might sound a little bit like Levinas, what we were talking about, who saw the Holocaust as emerging from a culture in which abstract thought removed Germany from a focus on human dignity, um, which we talked about just recently. But uh, and this might sound Marxist, this return to this focus on labor, but she's not a Marxist. She questions if we may have lost the sense of a public sphere where an individual can act politically and distinguish themselves and instead all we have is a private sphere where individuals pursue their self-interest in a, in a consumerist fashion. And so Arendt wanted Western philosophy to return to, to return a premium on the concrete, the concrete, not just the abstract. In her work of 1963 called On Revolution, I know none of us were alive in 1963, um, but in that work On Revolution, Arendt opposed the idea of Marx and Hegel that revolutions of the products are the products of historical forces. Rather, she believed they, that revolutions come from direct action, right? Let's remind ourselves, Marx and Hegel, I mean, it's complicated stuff, but Marx and Hegel think that history is pushing us towards revolutions, towards these paradigm shifts. Um, and they're almost, I don't, I don't want to say inevitable, uh, but one might say that. Um, but at, but but here, Arendt is talking about direct action, right? It's not inevitable. It's not historical, um, right? It's happening from human leadership. Furthermore, she saw a major distinction between the French and American revolutions. The American revolution was to be admired because it never gave up on pursuing the fundamental principle of freedom and eventually enshrined it into the Constitution. I mean, that's complicated stuff also because of the inequalities in American history. However, the French Revolution eventually turned against its own principles and drifted into terror and Napoleon's dictatorship. By the way, I have not seen the movie, but if, you, if any of you have seen the movie Napoleon that's out now, that I hear um, is very violent, very sexual, very intense, but also histor um, valuable to historians, um, we'd love to hear your movie review in the chat over here. Um, or maybe you want to go with me one day and we'll see it together. <laughs> Um, Steve, I know you're going to invite me after this. And if you do, I'll say yes. <laughs> However, the French Revolution eventually turned against its own principles and drifted into terror and Napoleon's dictatorship, as I said. For Arendt, human initiation... Right, so just step back. So she admires the American Revolution because it stayed true to its principles, by and large, and, and, on a steady process of progress from there towards equality for women, people of color, etc. Um... Well, and the French Revolution eventually gets there as well, but they had this kind of pit stop with Napoleon, uh, which it has a complicated legacy. Of course, relationship to the Jews is is more charitable in some ways, but relationship to other groups and, you know, his, you know, reign of terror. In any case, not, this, this is not Napoleon. And for Arendt, human initiation and brilliance can bring about great change in the world, but without a grounding in morality and remaining committed to it, they can also cause harm. Right? Progress is not just about brilliant people leading, it's about moral leadership. 
We can see this as a point of tension with her later claim that Eichmann was part of an evil machine. Are problems caused by people or by systems? Right? Are we attacking evil systems in the world or evil people? Right? Right? Right now is the problem um, the system of Hamas or the system of Islamic terrorism? Or is the problem specific people who are upholding that? So too, was the problem Nazism and the Nazi system or unique individuals that were choosing to kind of maintain the system? What is freedom in the thought of a rent? We will see. Are we just cogs in a system or are we free to change things within systems? Her work that might hit closest to home for us as Jews, though, is Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. As a reporter for The New Yorker, um, I love and hate The New Yorker, one, because I don't have the patience to read like 20 page articles. And um, <laughs> and two, because and, and I like it because they're very thought provoking, but it's been a while since I read The New Yorker. Anyways, as a reporter for The New Yorker, Arendt covered the trial that marked the first and only time the state of Israel has put someone to death. What made her perspective unusual was that she believed Eichmann, a key perpetrator of the Holocaust, to be a cog in an evil system rather than simply an evil person himself. Here's what Arendt wrote. The trouble with Eichmann was precisely that so many were like him and that the many were neither perverted nor sadistic, that they were, are, and still are, terribly and terrifyingly normal. From the viewpoint of our legal institutions and of our moral standards of judgment, this normality was much more terrifying than all the atrocities put together, right? These were not just like psychos that were just all Nazi, Nazi officers. These were people who went home at night and had dinner with their families and put their children to bed with bedtime stories. Um, you know, and there was a normality to the people who were Nazis. Um, and so she's looking more at the system than the people, right? It's the terror of the normality of the Nazi system, which is so which is so terrifying. If it was just psychopaths, we understand that there's there's sociopaths, psychopaths who do crazy things and that we have to you know, lock them away, right, to protect society. But when a whole system emerges and people appear to be normal in other parts of their life, but are not just complicit, actively participating, it's all the more startling. By Arendt's account, Eichmann was a totally normal person one might write in, run into in a street or in a restaurant. <clears throat> Seeing this ordinary looking man held in a glass witness box during the trial made it seem to her that anyone, if put in the wrong situation, could be made into a monster that they could end up just following orders from above, um, right? When I say he's ordinary looking, right? Um, th th think of the stereotypical person who, um, wait, it's not fair to people who choose to look this way, um, but who we might think of as, you know, beyond kind of the norms of society. Someone who's got tattoos all over their face, has, you know, dozens of body piercings or face piercings, someone who has a mohawk or or purple colored hair, right? nothing against those things. But those are things that are countercultural. They're things that people associate with, uh, you know, somebody who is outside of this kind of the social norms. When someone has eyeglasses and kind of a normal type of haircut or whatever the case is, clean shaven, right? So again, those aren't fair stereotypes, but you looked at this person in a suit and tie and these eyeglasses and the way he spoke, wow, this guy seems terrifyingly normal, right? Um, he doesn't yell. Um, I mean, and actually, it's been a while since I heard I heard the recordings. I don't know if he yells, but I don't recall that. According to Thomas White in the work, what did Hannah Arendt really mean by the banality of evil? Here's what he writes. Arendt found Eichmann an ordinary, rather bland bureaucrat who, in her words, was neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. He acted without any motive other than to diligently advance his career in the Nazi bureaucracy. Eichmann was not an amoral monster, she concluded in her study of the, of the case Eichmann in Jerusalem. Instead, he performed evil deeds without evil intentions, a fact connected to his thoughtlessness, a disengagement from the reality of his evil acts. Eichmann, quote, never realized what he was doing 
due to an inability to think from the standpoint of somebody else. Lacking this particular cognitive ability, he committed crimes under circumstances that made it well nigh impossible for him to know or to feel that he was doing wrong. This idea of Arendt would be challenged in 2011 by the German philosopher Bettina Stegner in her book Eichmann Before Jerusalem. Stegner strongly refuted Arendt's ideas that Eichmann was a powerless part of a system arguing instead that he was a vicious anti-Semite, took immense pride in the fact that he murdered so many Jews. Another critique came from the German, excuse me, from the Jewish scholar of mysticism, Gershom Shalom, who held that Arendt in her reporting on Eichmann was overly harsh in her judgment of Jews during the Holocaust. Elements of her analysis gave the impression that those forced to serve on Jewish councils set up by the Nazis were no better than collaborators, and that Jews could have done more to resist Nazi oppression. Shalom claimed that such assertions could only be made by one not sufficiently grounded in the suffering of the Jewish people, and it did not reflect the love of the Jewish people. Shalom wrote to Arendt in a letter, I don't picture Eichmann as he marched around in his SS uniform and relished how everyone shivered in fear before him, as the banal Gentlemen, you now want to persuade us he was, ironically or not. In her thought of Arendt, excuse me, in the thought of Arendt, people generally don't do wrong because they find joy in it or want to do evil. Rather, they lose the ability to think critically and become victim of oppressive political systems that capitalize on those weaknesses to make them do unthinkable things. Arendt was so deeply interested in politics, and she believed we have to repair these systems that have such a profound impact on skewing people's moral decision-making. Arendt ultimately concluded that while Eichmann did not set out to do evil, he had become a person unfit to live among the rest of us. She wrote, and just as you supported and carried out a policy of not wanting to share the earth with the Jewish people and the people and the people of a number of other nations, as though you and your superiors had any right to determine who should and who should not inhabit the world, we find that no one that is no member of the human race can be expected to want to share the earth with you. This is the reason and the only reason you must have. It is important to note that whatever specifically brought Eichmann to do what he did, his case remains the only time that Israel has used the death penalty. To this day, it is debated whether even this one exception should have been made. However, most Jews would agree that even if one is against the death penalty generally, the scope and irrefutable documentation of Eichmann's brutality made the death penalty warranted in such a case. This approach is not far off from what is expressed in the Talmudic tradition, that humans are capable of justly carrying out the death penalty only in exceptionally rare cases, if ever. Here's what we learn from the Mishnah over here in um, Makot. A Sanhedrin, meaning a Jewish court, that executes a transgressor once in seven years is characterized as a destructive tribunal. Since the Sanhedrin would would subject the testimony to exacting scrutiny, it was extremely rare for a defendant to be executed. Rabbi Elazar Benazaria says, This categorization applies to a Sanhedrin that executes a transgressor once in 70 years, not seven, but 70. If you kill one in 70, you're a destructive tribunal. Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say, if we had been members of the Sanhedrin, we would have concluded trials in a manner whereby no person would have been executed. Rabbi Shibon ben Gamliel says, in adopting that approach, they too would increase the number of murderers among the Jewish people. The death penalty would lose its deterrent value as all potential murderers would know that no one is ever executed. So if you want to make the case for death penalty in Jewish thought, you would quote Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, who says the death penalty is a deterrent um, to you know, you know, make potential murderers pause before they act. And if you want to make the case against death penalty, um, you have um, Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Elazar Benazaria 
um, who basically argue it should be very rare if ever used um, because of the potential um, for error. This debate is important to think closely about today as it remains contentious in Israel whether terrorists should be executed, right? If someone was known to have committed an act of terror and killed people, should they be executed? And many Israelis think yes, many Israelis think no, many are conflicted. How much should immersion in a destructive culture be a mitigating factor for the punishment of an individual? What if you found that this, you know, 20-year-old member of Hamas, you know, um, was just raised with Hamas ideology and was never free to think beyond it, and his family was going to receive money for him killing himself? Would even a senior soldier in a totalitarian or terrorist regime have little choice in their actions? Or is it just the junior, the juniors who are following orders? If someone is no longer a danger to others anymore, what is there to gain by killing them? Could we do it for justice? Could we do it for revenge? Could we do it to make, the, make them as an example to deter future killers? A wise reading of the religious, philosophical, and sociological wisdom would tell us that the death penalty should almost always be avoided, um, one might suggest. In my interpretation of Arendt, I believe one of her goals was communicating that to prevent evil from reoccurring, we cannot place all the blame on individuals, right? The bad apples, so to speak. We must see the role of the systems that produce evil and ensure that those systems don't continue to emerge. It may look as though Arendt was weak, giving a partial moral pass to Eichmann, but she wanted to go after totalitarianism at large. She had a bigger fish to fry, right? Not just hanging Eichmann, but actually taking down the structures that enable um, such systems to exist. Many decades later, with authoritarianism and fascism re-emerging in the world to a not insignificant level, we can see how the worst in people can be brought out by what is around them. That This is true not only with Putin or with Trump or Bolsonaro, but with the whole populist mindset that they exploit. To be sure, Arendt's critique of totalitarianism was certainly tied to her views on combating anti-Semitism. Perhaps the lesson we can take from Hannah Arendt is less about the banality of evil and more about the fragility of justice and how diligently it must be protected and cultivated. Okay, friends, that was a lot to throw at you. Uh, we've got a small group today due to our date change. So I would love to hear from each of you. Hi. Hi. Um, you, you just used the phrase banality of evil, and I was in another mindset at the time, and I, I don't recall what you were referring to, if you can recall. That's a great question. The short answer is, um, I don't exactly know what she meant. The longer answer is what is generally considered, you know, to be what we're generally considered to be talking about here, is about this, this question of, um, well, first, if we just think about the notion of banality, you know, meaning um, there's something unoriginal, there's something normal, something uncreative. Um, part of what she's talking about here with the banality of evil is how kind of normalized it can be, how mainstream it can be, how um, people who, for lack of a better, you know, phrase, um, to operate like the rest of us can participate in such evil processes. Um, that when we think of evil, we think of this atrocious, abnormal person who is outside the norms of society. And in her looking at systems and societies where evil becomes pervasive, um, that there's a banality of evil, something that is so terrifying because it is uh, so so widespread and um and not rare does that make sense yeah thank you for asking um hopefully we'll circle back to hear more from you steve arnie we'd love to hear from you arnie it seems to me that uh, i saw a, a, the rabbis in general were uh tried very often to soften the dictates in the torah and in the talmud is that a general generally a valid observation okay that's, that's a great question so make, to make sure i understand what you're saying is 
that um, that the rabbi one of the roles of the rabbis is to soften some of the laws of the of of the Torah. Is that is that, is that what you're saying? Yes, I can give you okay. an example if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, want to feel free to give as many examples as you like. This is fictitious, but I think it's it's pretty true to form. And the um, and the uh, book, uh, the Beauty Queen of Jerusalem. Uh, one of the characters is a, a bastard, a mumser. Yeah. And he wants to marry a non-mom, a, right. a, a lady who's a non-mumser. Yeah. So they, he goes with his mother to the rabbi, and the rabbi's looking for ways that he could, he, she, he, they could, he would not be a mumser. There are so many examples, and I'm so glad you brought this up. I, your example of the mumser, the bastard child, is a, is a classic one. We could also talk about the wayward child, the child who is supposed to be stoned to death. We could talk about the sota, the, um, you know, the, this trial for this potentially adulterous woman. Um, we could talk about the get, women getting divorced, and and then the, and then a very classic case, our case of the death penalty here. And yes, again and again, the rabbis of the Talmud take laws of the Torah that seem harsh and to not align with um, their moral sensitivities, and um engage in a Talmudic process of so of softening them of of making them either extinct or incredibly rare in terms of their application so um and um and they do it in a kind of a painstaking you know in, in a long painstaking process um that really shows a sensitivity to the text they're not saying oh that's immoral we reject that they're saying oh no of course that's the law but here's why it doesn't really apply, or here's all the new conditions you need. They say, of course, the death penalty is still there. But here's what you need to do for it to happen. You need to have two witnesses present. And the two witnesses need to go to the perpetrator at that moment and say, do you know you're about to kill this person? And the, and the potential yes. killer says, yes. They say, do you know if you kill them that the death penalty will be why? And, they, and he says, yes. And do you know, blah, 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 blah. And you know, something that would basically never work, um, it, that where it, it becomes um, it becomes you know concretized in law that the person's intentions are clear and that they know what they're doing and it's not a passion crime or ignorant or the like. And so yes, and one of the fascinating things about Judaism, I think, is exactly this point you brought up, Ernie: this commitment to an evolving tradition. That continue. Some some would object to the word evolving, but a tradition that um, is sensitive to continuity, but one that continues to be um, engaged with the moral sensitivities of our day. So, Arnie, back to you. Yeah, no, that was that was my whole point. Oh, great, great, thank you, wonderful. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, lawyers interpreting secular law is 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 a much less dynamic process and much less rich and much more kind of authoritative in, in, in a sense. Uh, but yes, there is something similar there uh, that's going on, of course, kind of li in liberal judicious, judicial thought versus conservative judicial thought. There's different approaches to this and how we think about precedent and how we think about original intent and the like. But uh, yeah, there certainly are similars. Those who engage in comparative law between Jewish law and American law um, you know, really like love looking at those similarities and differences. You know, what do you think uh, around the sources of evil, the death penalty, totalitarianism, lots of rich topics. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Rabbi. Where does tshuva lie in, in the process of of um, providing kind of a rabbinical counsel on what is to happen? Great. So um, in, in regards to death penalty? Correct. So the death penalty completely eliminates the, the ability of tshuva, right? Right, right. So, yeah. So I think that um, um, I think those who support the death penalty um, would be divided on this point. There are those that sit, would say, I don't care um, who this person is in prison now, 30 years later, and the fact that they appear to be a saint and regret what they did. Um, the fact is they, you know, killed and raped 30 children. And that's just atrocious and they need to be killed. And another type would say like, wow, that was really atrocious, but we're really dealing with a very different person now. And that ought to be considered. And um, 
the person we want to put to death is the one who shows no remorse, you know, is someone who um, really is irredeemable. And then getting into the camp of those who oppose the death penalty, I think it would be precisely the point that Eddie's bringing up. It's, it's the Jewish theology that every person is capable of teshuva. Um, everyone is capable of changing their life, is capable of rethinking their ways. No one is irredeemable. Um, and, um, you know, that is a strong case that those who want to abolish the death penalty might make. Um, that, yes, give someone a life of imprisonment, right, uh, perhaps, but, um, you know, allow them to engage in a process of shuva. In fact, Jewish law prohibits putting a barrier towards someone else's teshuva. One of the problems with incarceration is that one of the notions Maimonides teaches us of what you need to, to be able to engage teshuva is um, to be back in the same situation. How do you know someone is a Baal teshuva, someone has really mastered repentance? They appear in the same situation where they did wrong last time, and this time they choose differently. And incarceration, you can't really choose that. Now, someone might say, well, I don't care. Like, this person has no right to be around children anymore, having molested children. Someone else might say, right, they can only really engage in teshuva if they are put back in situations where they can choose otherwise. And so, um, yeah, any other follow-up on that, Eddie, or? Yeah, I, I had another follow-up question. Yeah, right. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on collective? Um, so, like, I'm thinking about like soldiers, and we were talking about Nazis at that point. What do you? What are your thoughts on Nazis who were killed, who were just saying, "Well, I'm just following orders," or or people that are forced to do awful things that were saying, "Well, I'm just you know following orders that my life would have been." I would have been killed if if I were to arise in opposition. And I'm also thinking about like current times where we have terrorists that are forced to be suicide bombers or forced to commit atrocious acts. Then um, when facing a death penalty or similar um, thoughts of, of punishment are, are fall in line to the thought of, well, I'm just following orders. Great, great question, Eddie. So let me share my thought and then um, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, how you think of it. Uh, potentially differently, Eddie, or anyone else. The way I would think of just warfare is that it, um, to the extent that that soldier poses a risk to you during the warfare, you kill that soldier. Um, to the extent that, that that soldier is surrendering or is posing no threat with their hands up or the like, you do not kill them. Um, but, you know, you... Um, imprison them, you you know, and so um, and so I I think the same would apply you know to Hamas today as with a Nazi soldier uh, that if a member of Hamas is shooting at an IDF soldier in warfare then you shoot back, and if they are putting down their gun and waving a white flag or approaching hands down that you do not shoot them. Um, so Eddie, what do you think of that? I agree with you. Do you then think that there is a process of redemption to uh, towards people who have committed atrocious acts? Um, meaning, so like one of those people who was in prison for that. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the mitigating factors ought to be, meaning one of the factors that the judge ought to consider in the case is the um, culture a per person emerged from, right? Just like um, a public defender would would argue for a lesser sentence for the 19 year old uh, person who was convicted of rape after showing that that child was himself raped at age eight or something, or that child was himself abused in some other way, showing that history of that child's abuse is will work to get them a lower sentence. So too, showing that someone grew up with an atrocious Hamas ideology or a Nazi ideology and had no and no exposure to any other thinking and now thinks of the world differently and now wants peace, not not war not or terror. Um, you know, I think that ought to be considered in how that person's, you know, fate is is uh is viewed. Okay, just before we go to Aglaya, Arnie, I want to know if that's if that's a fake background or if that's a real room in your house. Because I'm so intrigued 
Um, I know that uh, Aglaia is not next to the Van Gogh, whatever museum that Van Gogh is in right now, Starry Night. Um, but <laughs> but uh, Arnie, I'm, uh, I'm curious about yours. It's virtual. It's virtual, okay. I was gonna say, I'm sure you uh, have a great art taste, but that is uh, a fascinating <laughs> house or office. Okay, Aglaia, over to you. <laughs> Pull this um, up though, like I'm um, just going back to Eddie and um, Shashuva and everything, um, just pulling this one out. Um, one of um, my, you know, particular interesting points and everything though, but, okay, so as she wrote in The Human Condition, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we would never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever. And, yeah, so that's, um, there's also the other part about, um, you know, like uh, the promises, you know, like the promise of, you know, growing and not doing it again and all that other stuff. But I'm kind of curious, though, like, you know, like, um, considering things with um, the way that a lot of people say the person who's, you know, been in prison for being not the best person on earth, you know, they've been in prison for all kinds of like awful crimes, and they've got a life sentence and everything, though. And they've shown, you know, that they are remorseful and everything like that. There are some people out there who are just not going to be you know, appeased no matter what. Now, if I don't know if you like remember what I wrote about Maimonides and everything though, but the, you know, Maimonides says it's not cool to refuse to be appeased also, no matter what this person does. So, and I could go into like all kinds of other little, like, you know, sketch little issues, like for instance, so like, is the American revolution really all that? Mm, not, not really. It's okay though. But, and the French revolution was a big, well, I'm not going to say what I want to say, but anyway, though, you don't want to hear that word. But anyway, though, like I'm just thinking about it in terms of, you know, a lot of the time, though, people just refuse to be appeased. And so is the person who did this now being victimized by their refusal to appease? And if so, you know, I don't know. I don't I'm kind of confused. Are they also part of an evil system that basically says, OK, then you hold against people everything that they do, like the one single deed. There's OK, stop. It's, hold that deed against them so that they are continuously victimized by their wrongdoing. OK, I need to shut up because I almost said it. OK, <laughs> great. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this as well. It's such a fascinating point of glare around. Um, Around, and I would distinguish between kind of the most direct victim and, um, you know, other layers removed of proximity. Um, it feels like it's not for me to say, I think, that uh, the victim of something atrocious, you know, needs to be ready to appease, even though that's the moral ideal. Um, I can understand why some people could never get there if somebody killed their child or something like that, or someone, you know, made it so they can never walk again or whatever the case is. Um, and um, it's almost like morally heroic for a victim of, of, of the most intense crimes to appease, um, you know, or to forgive, let's say, um, or want relationship rather than something that I think can be easily morally expected. But when you're talking about the collective, you know, that's a different conversation that I think we should strive for. I think you're, um, and, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and other thoughts on kind of one that comes to mind is just South uh, post-South African apartheid and the truth and reconciliation process of, you know, uh, there was a lot of rage of what could, you know, or alternative ways society could have been structured, but the attempt through Mandela's leadership to really appease um, you know, and try to heal a society of perpetrators and victims. I'm curious, Aglaia, what you, you think about that case or similar ones, uh, if others want to weigh in too, yeah. All right, does anyone, okay, I'm not sure if this is a spoiler. Okay, you go first, yeah, you go first. Spoiler alert, though, but um, Jacques Derrida and his paradox and everything, though, like there's only forgiveness where there's the unforgivable. And what he's talking about are these, you know, like collective, you know, 
horrific things. Now, I actually put poor undergrads through writing papers about that particular paradox and everything in their classes. But, you know, for a while I was getting good stuff. And then after that, though, they started hating me for it. But anyway, though, but I mean, the idea, though, that I'm kind of wondering, though, is that do we actually... All right, like just throwing this out there. I'm a historian and in history classes, we don't talk about collective forgiveness. It's like something that almost nobody does. And so I have kids come into my classes. They've never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. So as a society, though, I'm kind of not surprised that people kind of have this thing like, oh, yeah, you said you were sorry, but, you know, you, you know, that kind of thing. Um it doesn't surprise me because honestly, though, we don't talk about it with kids. We don't talk about it, period. And it's kind of like the squeamishness about even the subject. I mean, but I don't know. I mean, so does it surprise me that the U.S. has this like thing about death penalty also? As long as you actually are willing to like basically write someone as off as like this horrible person forever because of their screw ups and everything, no matter what they do. Well, doesn't surprise you that we have all of these issues with, well, we cling to the death penalty a little more than a lot of people actually are not just, you know, people in the United States, but people worldwide are exactly too happy with us. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Aglaia. Yeah. I think that's very interesting. And I think that indeed there's major segments of American culture that further this idea that, um, we're not complicit in systems that produce evil. Essentially, there's just these unique evil individuals. And if we just stop those evil individuals, then that, you know, will, you know, make us all safe. But when you, when you look at the more complicated dynamics and you take a collective forgiveness approach, um, we see there could be an, an alternative path. And that's really complicated. You're right. His, historically, there's not much to point to, uh, uh, um, at least not that I know. But... Um, you know, what a remarkable, uh, what a remarkable thing to look at when cultures do move beyond, meaning I think that, I think that very few Americans have a um, visceral hate towards Japanese people or towards Vietnamese people in a way that you think might still uh, be here because of, the, you know, the Vietnam War or World War II or people who hate Germans. I don't, I don't think many Americans just hate Germans because of, you know, because of the 1940s, right? Now that's different because it's very different in the 50s or, or in the 60s, 70s to forgive and then a few generations removed, right? Now, when there's still a relationship, like how black Americans and white Americans relate to each other, when there's still a complicated layers to that reality today is a different thing. But when Germans are over there in Vietnam, there's a distance or even Israeli German relations. I mean, you know, things evolve. And that's not necessarily about forgiveness as much as kind of generational shifts. But it, it is kind of fascinating to, you know, to think about. So, um, yeah. Anyways. Hey, Steve. Uh, hi. Uh, th th this is just an experience I had. It, it is not a profound insight. Uh, when I was working and had to re write reports in the stock market, I naively titled one Asian stock market. And somebody really chastised me and, and said, you can't do that because there still is in Singapore and other countries a disdain for everything Japanese. And in fact, in Singapore, I believe they have parks and exhibits devoted to the massacre of the Singaporeans by the Japanese. So I had to distinguish between the two. That was about 15 years ago. And I asked someone who has long, long since taken over my job. And, and she said, no, we don't have to make that distinction anymore. There's been kind of a forgiveness just by the aging of, of the horror show as opposed to actual teshuva or, or anything like that. And so it's just an observation. It's, it's not so much an insight. Thanks, Steve. Very interesting. Um, curious if others want to engage with that or move us in another direction. Anything is great. Thank you. Okay, can I just jump in really quickly and just throw something in? Yeah, All right. Please. 
Um, the short and the sorry, Eddie, I don't mean to interrupt your question, but okay, so um, just speaking about that with the Japanese, um, I remember my sister telling me something about um, that there was a conversation at lunch in which um, there were a lot of um, mean spirited things said about the Japanese during World War II and how Hiroshima was a good thing, and this was said in front of a Japanese citizen. And so this was kind of, there was tension there about that. So, but on the other hand, the, the Japanese guy ended up saying that, well, you know, the history is written by the winners. So I'm not exactly sure there's that. Has there been full, mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. So. right. Yeah, very interesting. Hi, Rabbi. Um, I posted on the chat, what are your thoughts on nature versus nurture on when on thinking about evil? Oh, okay, great. Um, yes. Now, now I see what you're asking. Um, so, um, yes. So I, I'd love to hear other folks in this as well. I'm very much in the camp that believes um, that nature and nurture are always in dynamic play with each other. Um, you can't just choose one. People are not just um, their nature, nor are they just their nurture. That one what one's nurture can change um or bring to animate or uh downplay aspects of one's nature based um we know this I mean, there's lots of empirical studies and so i think that one of the um scary things around the idea of the evil gene i haven't it's been years since i read about this maybe someone can weigh in on this the, the attempt to identify the evil gene, right, and how we might contain someone who had this, um, and kind of, you know, the argument is that we'd make society safer by people with the evil gene being contained, and yet the obvious injustice around, well, they didn't do anything wrong, right? How can you how can you punish someone like this? And so, um, um, I think that yes, there are people who are born who are going to be more likely to engage in acts of evil, however we define those. Um, and their nurture is going to, um, you know, help to shift how that plays out. But um, it's a mystery, right? Was Hitler destined from birth to be a Hitler? Um, was it part of how he was nurtured? Was it part of the culture he was in um, and his historical time? These things are mysterious, and I'm kind of skeptical of those who want to, you know, paint very clear pictures as to why so one does acts of evil that they do. Um, you know, I think it, it is very mysterious, and I, I, although I do support, you know, again, demonstrating mitigating factors that might show why someone's sentence might be less based upon how they were nurtured, you know, poorly. But Eddie, I'm curious what you think about that. You want to weigh in on that or yeah no I, I think it's interesting um when we think about um the way some folks um kind of give reason to why some people commit atrocious acts of evil saying like you know they have a, a history of of you know, oppression pain abuse uh but then again there's other stories of of people who survive the exact same things and and don't do it i think about school shooters who oftentimes what we hear in camps is well the reason why is because they were abused, they were bullied, and that's why they did it. Um, but, you know, so many other kids are abused, bullied, and they don't shoot, shoot up schools and grow up in extreme poverty, grow up in the same circumstances. So then do you think, well, is it in the nature of, of the kid? Um, like, it, it's it's such a complex thing um, that I'm, I'm holding within as we're also thinking about the atrocities that are happening in Israel. Totally. Yeah, thank you. And... Interesting enough, um, sometimes people are inconsistent on when they hold nature versus nurture. Think about the political debates around someone who's trans so or, or gay. Someone will say, well, they're born like that, right? Someone will say, no, no, it's because of how they were mothered, right? Or it's because of the culture of our time, right? And based on one's political ideology, regardless of whether they have any empirical experience or any scholarly information around nature versus nurture, they take a hard stand. I'm a liberal on this. You're born gay. You're born trans. And I defend that you were born that way. You're conservative. You say, no, no, nobody's born that way. Right. Our culture is emphasizing that they were parented a certain way. Right. They were encouraged. Right. And it seems almost everyone is in one of those two camps based upon their ideology of 
LGBTQ rights, which is sort of interesting. And then it it also turns out that on crimes, um, when people don't like someone, they're much more willing to think they were free, right? I hate Donald Trump, and he's just an evil person. He chooses it. No one's gonna be like, oh, he was parented poorly. Poor Donald. Like, you know, he would just be such a nicer person if he had nicer friends and parents. I hate him, so he's evil, right? Someone else says, oh, well, this person is my race or my ethnicity or my religious group, and they committed a crime. Well, they should get a lesser penalty because they weren't treated well as a kid. We should defend them. And you know, so people are very inconsistent, I think, in terms of who they want to defend and and claim something as a nature versus nurture case. So Aglaia, you get the last comment because we're here at time. Okay, so instead of talking about Dante, I'm just going to take it to the Marvel universe, actually. So um, I just remember reading the different times when Magneto is actually thinking about, um, you know, the character Magneto is thinking about whether or not he'd go back in time and kill Hitler when he was a baby, basically. Right. right. He's, you know, when Magneto is more, you know, on the good side, that's when he says no. When he's on the, you know, dark side of whatever that's when he says yes and so <laughs> i know i know that he, okay. yeah. <laughs> anyway, though, that's when he says yes so my i don't know my concern there is that um even if we were um i don't know even if we were to find some sort of evil gene um it just looks to me like something like okay so how did you i mean like you said, this genetics, how do you know 100%? The other thing that I wanted to throw in there, though, um, about um, that, and I'm starting to lose my train of thought because I'm kind of out there today, though, but um, it was about historically, um, I'm going to tell you there are enough historical precedents. Our society is not actually what made someone transgender or gay, or it's not the acceptance. That is something that's been around forever. And I can actually bring you enough. That's what I want to tell these people. I can bring you enough historical examples that you know, but in their minds, though, this was actually created by society. So I, my final word on the subject, though, is that I think that people bring out that argument because there's no actual clear, clear, you know, question, clear answer to the question, so that they can basically get their way in an argument. Now, that's just me being kind of, you know, like skeptical as usual, though. But I mean, you bring out, okay, so you are on the nurture side one minute, and then you're on the nature side the next minute, basically, based on whatever it is that you want to say. So I don't know, that's just my, I don't know, what's convenient for you. So anyway, are you okay? Fascinating. Excellent points. Thank you all. It's great to learn from you all. So many interesting points about you know, um, our skepticism, but also our optimism in the human spirit um, and um, to what degree we can, we should be thinking about individuals development versus societal development and what it is we want to change and what we want to believe in the goodness, the goodness of the person, the goodness of the collective um, or where we want to be skeptical. So much more to discuss here. And I look forward to continuing with you. Have a beautiful day. Many blessings to you in 2024 for good health and success. Hope to see you all soon.